1: Welcome
2: back everybody to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and thank you for tuning in once again as we become better habitat managers. We are the podcast for learning wildlife habitat management. Now, I want to thank the listeners for tuning in once again this week. We have a great episode for you guys. One of my favorites so far. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you know who Dr. Craig Harper is from the University of Tennessee, but he is our guest tonight. Uh, he is an author as well. Uh, the book I have in front of me is Managing Early Successional Plant Communities for Wildlife in the Eastern U.S. And guys, that is what we are covering tonight, Early Successional Plant Communities. Not only do we talk of ab- all things early successional, we talk about You know, how does a guy like me or you uh, start with some ESH? Um, You know, what are the costs of early successional habitat versus the cost of traditional food plots? You know, the the 10 most prevalent weed plants we should be, you know, concerned about and maybe want as Forbes uh, in our early successional habitat and plant communities. Guys, literally this episode, we got schooled. We got schooled by Dr. Harper, and it was awesome. Um, It's a very informative episode, one of my favorites, like I mentioned, and uh, hang around and make sure you uh, listen to it once, twice, maybe three times, and uh, let us know how you think. Um, Before we get into it, I'd like to thank Killer Food Plots, our partner. Uh, Now, Nick is uh, out there right now doing a lot of land tours and habitat plans for people, um, he does it in multiple states and getting the spring plan together, if you will. So a lot of people are some, planting some spring plots. It's been pretty wet here, but it's starting to dry out. And uh, people are getting their seed ordered, getting their soil test done, and getting the plan together. So Nick can help you with that. I, I do my soil test through him. And uh, check him out at killerfoodplots.com. The next partner I'd like to thank is Lincoln at PackerMax.com. Cultipackers. So Lincoln did a pretty cool thing the other day. He uh, was on Facebook and he gave away a Cultipacker to uh, one of our combat veterans uh, here in Michigan. I thought that was pretty darn cool, Lincoln. And uh, you know, glad to call you my friend and partner of the Habitat Podcast. That was that was awesome that you support the veterans, and uh, as as do I. And and Brian uh, being a veteran here at the Habitat Podcast so thank you for that and uh, guys check him out at packermax.com those things are solid like hotcakes and now is the time of year to get yours so you can have it ready for this spring and fall planting and lastly I want to talk about Nick Nation at Nation's Creations he is the owner of the Habitat Hook Uh, I know it's getting later into the spring now the leaves are starting to bud but it's still a good time to hinge you know I've been telling you guys about how I hinged, like, near my parking area as a tornado zone or a barrier to try to block me as I park and sneak into my property. Well, because it's the only hinge on my property, hinge area so far, I already have a deer bedding up against it. I spooked him the other day looking for mushrooms. So, just like that, within two weeks, I had deer bedding against my hinge-cut tornado zone. the reason I I tell you that is because I need to get out there more with my hook and make some actual real bedding areas where they can focus on, not up by my car, but without the habitat hook, the hinges would not be as successful as I was able to do them, I mean, it was the tool, I I can't imagine, you know, I was able to drop some trees without it and just fell some, but to actually hinge them, and especially those medium to larger trees in the right direction, it really helps with that hook. Check Nick out at nationscreations.net. And make sure you mention the Habitat podcast for him, and link it at the Packer Max, and make sure you get yourself a Packer discount as well. So, guys, I'd like to thank uh, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit and Dip That Hydrographics before we get on here. And real quick, I would like to tell any new listener to check us out at habitatpodcast.com, on iTunes, podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify, and you know, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as well, at Habitat Podcast. Be sure to let us know what you think, like, subscribe, and you know, keep helping us grow. We really appreciate the support and the feedback. Well, without further ado, let's get Dr. Craig Harper on the line, and you guys can all listen to us get schooled on early successional plant communities. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Craig Harper. How are you doing today, Craig?
3: I'm pretty good, uh, especially considering the fact that I've recent gotten, recently gotten over about of, of brucellosis uh, and toxicosis, and and the fever.
1: All oh, wow. Since
3: uh the last week of january it, it has not been a it has not been a pleasant ride but uh i'm i'm happy to say that i'm well on the mend and uh pretty close to getting back to 100% well
2: good to hear good to hear uh we we need you back out there so how long <laughs> how long were you down and out for
3: uh well like I say, since uh about the last week of january oh, or all the way through february so it's been it, it's been unpleasant but uh hey we all have things that we have to get through, and uh, yes, it could have been a whole lot worse. There's a whole lot of people out there that are in much, much worse shape than
2: what I was in, so uh, no worries. All right. Well, glad to have you back, and uh, you are right about that. Um, we wanted to get you on here. We we talk about nothing but managing habitat for, for wildlife and, and to become better habitat managers on our show here, and and you were a guy that we've, we've heard a lot from, from friends of ours, from former guests of ours, we want to get you on. So for those of you who, or for those of our listeners who do not know who you are or where you're from, do you mind giving us a background on, on who you are and, and where you work and what you do in the, the habitat world these days? Sure.
3: Um, I am a professor of wildlife management and the Extension Wildlife Specialist at the University of Tennessee, uh, which is here in Knoxville, Tennessee, co Uh We are on the men from uh, a poor football program over the past several years and uh, (laughs) looking to do nothing but uh, get better, believe me. Um, But no, I've I've been here for, actually it'll be 21 years next month and I'm originally from North Carolina, uh, 10th generation North Carolinian. All my family's still over there. Uh, Went to school in in North Carolina and South Carolina uh, with degrees in Wildlife management, biology, natural resources management, forest management, etc. And uh, I did. I worked a while for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. And uh, once I, I finished a, a Ph.D. at Clemson University, which not having uh, any problems with the football program there, thank goodness. Uh, I came to work here at the University of Tennessee, and and life is good. I've had a very good time here at Tennessee. Uh, treated me. Real well, we have an excellent department uh, with uh, a wildlife program here, and I direct graduate students in addition to extension uh, responsibilities. Uh, what's different about me, perhaps, than than most is all of the research that I do is applied management oriented. I'm a manager at, at heart, always have been, not the traditional professor that most people would think of, so whatever research we conduct, it is going to be information that a manager can take immediately and benefit from in some form or manner. And so as the Extension Wildlife Specialist, I take this information that we are gathering through research and immediately begin to deliver it to both professional wildlife managers as well as landowners who are managing their property for wildlife. Uh, Most of that has to do with whitetail deer, a lot of it with wild turkeys. Also, northern bobwhite, rough grouse, uh, to a much lesser extent, some songbirds, and even things such as eastern box turtles, which we've got a project going on right now, uh, finishing up looking at the effects of prescribed fire on eastern box turtle. So there's a lot of different things that we get into, but it's all applied management oriented, usually having to do with fire, uh, silviculture, you know, through forest management, herbicide applications, planting, uh, disturbance practices other than fire and herbicides, such as disking or mowing or Something to do with managing land for, for wildlife to enhance habitat for different species.
2: Oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we got the right guy then. That's the right Craig Harper. Okay. Sorry to make sure. <laughs> now, when you say... I, I sell insurance in uh, upper New
3: York. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would sell it.
2: Oh, man. I'm oh, <laughs> glad we got the right guy. No, that's quite that's quite the background and, and some interesting... Some stuff there. When you say you help um, wildlife management professionals, uh, what exactly, or who exactly are those people? Are they, you know, WMA managers, or who are these people? Yes. Uh,
3: they are biologists and managers with state wildlife agencies. Uh, also do work with state forestry agencies. Next week, I'm supposed to help with in-service training for U.S. Forest Service civiculturists, so uh, USDA, uh, the NRCS, um, various state wildlife agencies. So uh, I I do a lot of work, especially here in Tennessee and the surrounding states where I work very closely with a lot of the biologists and managers with the state wildlife agencies, but also, I do in service training for various state wildlife agencies that might ask me to come and and spend you know one two or three days with them, giving their guys and gals the uh, latest information for example on managing early successional communities uh so I'll go and and share with them the the latest that uh information that we have as as well as that from others so yeah that's i I do quite a bit of that but uh You know, that also do a lot with with the private landowners as well.
2: Okay, wow, great. And based on –
3: And and here in Tennessee, the primary delivery of that is is through the network of extension agents that we have. So, uh, you know, when you ask my involvement with professional uh, natural resource managers – most of those, of course, work with state wildlife agencies. But the delivery, especially to the private landowners, uh, a line share of that is also done through our network of, of county extension agents who do an excellent job and, and
2: know their clientele
3: and their counties very well.
2: Wow. That's quite the list. Now, if you are making... Some videos for for some of the the organizations out there like, like QDMA. We're Brian and I are both members there, and we've spoken with uh, Lindsey Thomas Jr. on here, and uh, you know we love what they're doing there. What's your role with organizations like QDMA, where I see your your uh, your videos come across through their emails and, and things like that?
3: My role with QDMA is uh, probably somewhat unique. Uh, I have been involved with QDMA for, for many years, um, especially since the late 90s, uh, 1998, I think, is when Brian Murphy called me for the first time, which I knew Brian since way before then and, and especially Joe Hamilton since the, the mid-1980s. And uh, my major professor, Dave Gwynn, back from my PhD, was uh, one of the founding members of the QDM and, and one of the researchers, along with uh, Larry Marchington, uh Harry Jacobson, and others that provided a lot of the scientific information that Joe and the QDMA originally ran with In promoting this philosophy of quality deer management so I have been involved in some way form or fashion with them for a a very long time but I don't think I had been here probably a month in in May of 1998 when Brian called and he said hey I'm trying to get things on the ground here I think he'd been at QDMA as the new CEO for I think less than a year Uh, I know he began in in 1997 in in that capacity. And he asked if I would help him with some uh, workshops to be held here and there. And, of course, uh, I told him that I would. And and I covered the habitat management portion of things, whereas other folks would cover population dynamics and other, other topics that we covered. So we did that for a long time hopscotching around from place to place to place doing these workshops and that is eventually what morphed into what now is known as the deer steward program which is very good there's deer steward one and deer steward two deer steward one of course taken on line and deer steward two is in person over the course of uh, about three days or so and uh, Matt Ross and Kip Adams do an excellent job in administering that program, and I have helped them well since it began through the the Deer Steward uh, course. Of course, I, I write an article every once in a while and help them with all kinds of activities. And they might just happen to do some video or something and put it on Facebook or whatever. But I, I, I do not work. I do not. I tell people they think I work for QDMA <laughs> because you know these videos and other things are online and people see it, and I tell them no, I don't work. For QDMA, I work with QDMA, so uh, QDMA certainly is a partner with UT Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries, and and we're proud to have that relationship, and, you know, working with uh, organizations like that is just another conduit to extend, you know, extension. We are extending information that is generated from research. That's what extension is.
1: Yeah, I've noticed a lot of your uh, articles are still available on the QDMA website, and uh, for any of our listeners that want to read up on those, they're pretty easy to find. You just type in Dr. Craig Harper in Google, and some of his University of Tennessee uh, publications will come up and also his QDMA articles. Speaking of the um, University of Tennessee publications, Craig, uh, I know you did one on early successional habitat. We've touched on that on our podcast in the past. Uh, could you go in depth about that? What is early successional habitat? How we can identify it? Well, yes. Uh, the first thing I would do is is let's let's think about the
3: terminology first. And and what we're talking about is is early successional plant communities. That's what it is. Uh, A lot of people, and and this is representative of many sites, a lot of people might look at an old field, uh, a fallow field, a fallow field being one that uh, is in recent years since being in crop production. Over time, there's all kinds of stuff growing up in these fields, and commonly that's termed an old field. Uh, These are early successional plant communities because the plants that occur there are Those early pioneering herbaceous species, mostly annuals, and after a year or two, the perennial species become dominant, perennial herbaceous species. And then after another year or two or three, woody species will begin to show up. And so regardless of where you are from Iowa or Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Florida, Louisiana, pick a spot that same process is going to take place no matter where you are. So let's say, for example, you disc a field, and then you walk away from it. What's going to happen to that field within a year or come the next growing season? Uh, even whether it's in winter or summer, it's going to start greening up pretty soon. And those seed are present in what we call the seed bank, and they germinate and start growing. Now, of course, most people call these weeds. Weeds just being to them, any plant that grows without uh, planting, but that is a misnomer. Uh, a weed is simply an unwanted plant. Many of these plants that are germinating out of the ground are actually very much so wanted if you're trying to manage for increased deer nutrition or enhanced fawning cover, et cetera, so it's really inappropriate to call those necessarily weeds. And so to begin with, you're going to have a flush primarily of annual species, and on most sites, there's, you know, a lot of variation here, but on most sites, those annual species are going to dominate that site for the first one to two years, and after that second year, you're going to start seeing more and more perennial plants becoming established in the field. And after... Two, certainly three or four years, the plant community is going to be dominated by perennial grasses and forbs. And during that time, you're going to start seeing the odd woody sprout of whether it's sumac or eastern red cedar or Virginia pine or aspen or uh, wild cherry, persimmon, winged elm, those early pioneering woody species that begin to show up in some of these sites most often after three or four years. And so at that point, it's actually entering the third plant community on that site. The first plant community being dominated by the annuals. We call that the first successional stage. And then once the perennial plants take over, that's a whole different community. We call that the second perennial stage. And once the woody plants take over without any, without any disturbance, uh, before long, you're going to have a, a woody thicket there, right? And so that's the third plant community. We call that the third successional stage. And if left alone, uh, at that point, most often it's anywhere from 30 to 60 years or so. Those early pioneering woody species are going to give way to other longer-lived woody species. If you're in uh, most areas of the eastern United States, for example, you're typically going to see various oaks and hickories and red maples, sourwood, etc. a lot of different species coming in and taking over at that point. That would be the fourth plant community, or the fourth successional stage uh, taking part. Now, on some sites, and not on all, if that remains without disturbance over time, and at that point you're usually looking at uh, 100-plus years, there's going to be trees growing up in the understory of that forest that can grow in shade. Species such as white pine, uh, eastern hemlock, American beech, sugar maple, etc. And without disturbance, over a long period of time, they will take the place of those existing trees. And so that then would represent the fifth plant community, or what we call the fifth successional stage on that site. Of course, the species are going to differ from place to place to place, but this process is largely the same. And and I'm being very simplistic in this process. There's There's actually some... Some complex variation that takes place, but, you know, to try and boil this down into a simplistic scenario, that's what takes place. So if we have five possible successional stages, what then is early? Go ahead, and answer right. This
2: isn't difficult.
3: One and two. There you go. One and two. And what would be late?
2: Four, five, three, four, five.
3: Four and five. And what would be in the middle? Three? There you go. So it's yes. just as simple as that. And so when we're managing early successional communities, we're talking about keeping those herbaceous plant communities, and we'll go into that third or, or middle successional stage where we're starting to get some, some woody stuff in there, and we all know if we're wanting a good thicket to hold deer, it's really important to have some sites where that dense woody stem or you know dense woody stem is 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 present uh you know those thicket type areas we can manage those to help hold deer in in particular areas, so all of those are very important with regard to deer management
2: oh that's that's very important and uh nice explanation there Craig I know uh in your in your book, I think I'm—I think I found maybe a, a drawing that depicts kind of the, the five stages there, which helped me really understand um, how that works and, and how that looks exactly for what you're saying. But what you also added was which types of wildlife benefit from each stage, whether yeah. it's a, a dove all the way up to a, a timber rattlesnake. I mean, you have all kinds of wildlife benefiting from each stage here, which is just a really cool diagram there. Right.
3: Jer- Jeremy Putnam uh, uh, created that that diagram. I think he did a, a great job with it. One one thing that I will mention with regard to the species there and how that changes, the species by and large, the wildlife species found in these successional stages, by and large it, there's there's some differences here that we need to think about. Uh, they, by and large, are responding to structure, the differing structure, not so much the composition. For example, if if you have uh, a sweet gum thicket versus an Aspen thicket, both of which are in that six- to eight-year-old range, not that much. Difference, it's just, it's just thick woody stems, right? So the composition is not as important as the structure. However, in determining the successional stage, that, I- the composition is very important. That's how we determine what successional stage we're looking at. And, and I bring that out in a couple of diagrams where you might have horseweed, for example, growing in a fallow field. And it's very dense. And that horseweed is seven feet tall. You can't see two feet in front of you. But that's the first successional stage because horseweed is an annual forb. In another field at another site, you might have poor joe, which is an annual forb, growing. And it's only six to 12 inches tall. So the structure is very, very different in those uh, two plant communities, but it's the same successional stage. It's just an, an annual plant-dominated community. So the wildlife, by and large, are responding to the structure, but we define the successional stage based on the composition of the plant, that that is, which plants
1: are there. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now, Craig, why should uh – people managing their properties for white-tailed deer care about early successional habitat, and what would be a good way to apply it practically?
3: They should care about, uh, and and I'm going to say early successional plant communities instead of early successional habitat, because habitat for deer may include early successional communities, late successional, uh, et cetera. So you know as well as I do that deer are found in woods, as much as they are found in uh brushy thickets of of shrubs that are pioneering in as much as they might be found in uh an, an old field that is you know two feet tall vegetation two feet tall and might be found in a crop field as well, so they're found in a wide variety of uh vegetation types and and that 's why we call them uh a, a a habitat generalist. They are found in, in a wide variety of, of areas. However, deer habitat then can be comprised of a lot of different vegetation types. And so any one vegetation type is not a habitat. It's just a vegetation type that might provide them with food or might provide them with cover, might provide them with with uh, with water, whether it be a wetland or, you know, a riparian area or whatever the case may be. So, these early successional communities are important for deer because, number one, they may have a lot of forb growth, and forbs being those broad herbaceous plants. And those broad leaved herbaceous plants, many of them represent the most highly selected plants that deer seek out for forage and they also are exceptionally high in nutritional value. Uh, many times their protein content is in excess of 20, even 30%. Their calcium content is in ex- excess of 0.5%, which is in excess of what uh, even a dough with, with twin phones would need. The phosphorus content is in excess of 0.3%, which is, Far greater than what a buck growing antlers would need, so the nutritional content of these plants is, is very high. And then, if you manage these communities correctly, not only can you have outstanding cover for fawns, but you even can have outstanding cover for adult deer as well. So these communities can be an outstanding source of both food and cover, and at different times of the year, not just during the summertime.
2: Excellent, and when you said now, what do you oh, go ahead, Brian
1: no, go ahead, I was just saying when
2: when you said you manage them correctly, can you explain more what you mean by that?
3: Well, you have to set the successional process back periodically, or it's going to advance into woody species, right okay Can can we all agree that if we, you know, take that field that is disk and we step back and we do nothing with it, if we're in the eastern United States where in virtually any area east of the Great Plains we're getting 30-plus inches of rain a year, and even where you get as low as 18 to 20 uh, inches of rain a year, if you leave that site alone, ultimately it's going to be dominated by woody stems. Does everybody agree? Yep. Yeah, that's I mean. that, that is what happens. So if we don't implement some kind of disturbance to prevent that site from being dominated by woody plants and thus woody plants that shade out all of the herbaceous plants that would be growing, then your food value is going to drop out the bottom. Now, you can have excellent cover from you know high woody stem density, but your food value is going to be very low. And so if you're wanting to maintain the highest quality food, then you're needing to disturb that site occasionally with some kind of disturbance factor to maintain that in an early successional community, meaning maintain it in a herbaceous, dominated community.
2: Understood. Okay.
1: So a lot of guys try to get this early successional habitat started, and then they'll... um, start to see some invasive uh, plants popping up or some cool-season grasses that they don't want. How do we go about managing those types of problems? Um,
3: Primarily, uh, we manage invasive herbaceous plants that are coming into these areas by spot spraying Uh, most often glyphosate, but also uh, some selective herbicides as well, according to the problem plant that is coming into the site. Um, We also may uh, set back some some woody growth by spot spraying, but more often than not, we're setting back the woody growth either by prescribed fire, disking, or in... uh, I hate to even mention this, but in very rare cases, mowing. But mowing would be the the (laughs) least desirable with regard to maintaining uh, an early successional community. And, and of course, you're probably going to ask me why, and I'm glad to explain that, but I'll wait until you want to get into that.
1: Okay. Well, we can segue into that. You want to (laughs) tell us about your uh, opinions on mowing? Well,
3: there's there's a lot of ground to, to cover here but uh we'll we'll just jump right in if you use prescribed sure. fire you are consuming uh, most often the vegetation that's on the field uh, in the area and and I'm talking about field settings here let's let's not talk about the woods just yet I'm talking about field settings here uh consuming the vegetation and you're going to have uh, most of the vegetation coming back by uh by sprouts, not seedlings, but it's sprouting back up from existing root systems. And so over time, what you're going to maintain with continued prescribed fire is a plant community that is dominated mostly, not all, but mostly by perennial species, both perennial grasses and perennial forbs. If you mow, you're going to have the same thing, you're going to maintain a perennial Plant community. However, there's a couple things that's going to happen. One is the thatch from your mowing is going to be laid down on the ground. And over time, what you're going to see is you're maintaining a grass dominated community by mowing. Grasses thrive on mowing and grazing. They can continue to produce with no problem unless, you know, they're grazed to the ground or, you know, you, you mow right next to the ground, which is not done. Most often people are mowing anywhere from six to eight inches high or whatever with, with, you know, a a bush hog, some rotary mower. And you're maintaining a, a grass dominated, uh, community. Grasses are leased in preference among deer, at least in in selectivity, and uh, lowest in quality when compared overall with with forbs. And so when I'm trying to maintain high quality forage for whitetail deer, I'm getting rid of the grass. Uh, I'm certainly getting rid of all cool season grasses, perennial cool season grasses, such as tall fescue, bluegrass, Timothy, Orchard Grass, Smooth Brome, all of those, and and I don't want any more than say 30% coverage of warm season grasses such as Broom Sedge, Little Blue Stem, etc. What I want is uh, predominantly Forbs, and of those Forbs, I want those forbs that deer highly select. And so when I have Forbs coming in that deer don't select. I, I, I spot spray them with an herbicide application just either with a backpack sprayer, a four-wheeler, or a tractor with, with a sprayer. And these are directed spot spray applications, not, not broadcast. And so okay. where I kill those those plants, you know, there's a dead spot. And then I get growth from the seed bank coming back. And if I get growth from the seed bank coming back from seed, most often I'm going to have various annual plants coming in. Most of those annual plants are going to be very good forage plants. And so as I maintain a site with that technique, I have I continue to have prevalence of annual species. My structure is very heterogeneous. You know, it's it's variable, kind of up and down, and there might be some scattered woody stuff around. But I'm maintaining a good herbaceous base. So I maintain good uh, forage plants as well as some cover plants also.
2: Wow, that was uh, pretty eye-opening right there the last couple of minutes. Now, it's probably pretty important that you know every single forb on your property at that point, right? I mean, if you're going through it's, there. Plant, plant
3: ID is, is a real limitation with most people. But, you know, let's not shy away from that. Think about it. If you want to manage habitat for deer. If you talk if you're talking about food or cover, you're talking about plants, right? Yep, right? Yeah. So how can you manage for the best food or cover when that that is plants and you don't even know what the plants are? Well, that's an obvious handicap. At that point and this sure. is what happens guys, at that point People don't know what they're looking at. It's just green to them. And then they rely more on some bag of something that they can get at a feed store or online or whatever and dump that off out of the ground or they're trying to rely on food plots. Yep. Instead of relying on what is growing naturally or what can grow naturally on their property, if they just knew which plants were good and which plants were bad. And it's not the booger man that most people think of. You know, you can easily get some plant ID guides, and what I tell people is, look, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. To begin with, ID or find what you consider to be the 10 most prevalent plants on your property. That's not difficult. Now, can anybody out there not identify 10 plants? Just 10 plants? I mean that's you're you're rather sad. Let's just call it what it is. That's pretty doggone sad. If you want to manage your property for deer but you're unwilling to learn 10 plants. If you learn the 10 most common plants on your property, immediately you're a long ways into number 1 identifying where the limitations are in terms of what kind of plants you have and if they're good, bad, etc., and then all of a sudden, as you're getting rid of those that are unwanted, other ones are popping up, and you will see the the prevalence of different plants change. And then you you know you're going to pick up another one and another one, and all of a sudden you know twenty plants. And over the course of a couple of growing seasons of doing this, you're going to know twenty five to thirty plants. And all of a sudden, you begin to have a working knowledge of how to influence the plant community in those old fields on your property. And all of a sudden, you have increased the nutritional carrying capacity of your property without spending one dime on planting anything. And I'm not recommending that nobody ever plants anything i mean i I wrote a book on food plots i'm I'm a huge proponent of food plots i love to grow stuff and watch wildlife respond but to think that you're going to manage your deer just on food plots alone in my professional opinion is foolish
1: love it
2: yeah that's that's super awesome and i I, that's a great place to start um the ten most prevalent plants go from there i love that uh and, and it's not just in your fields. And I know right. y'all
3: are asking okay. me questions about early succession, but it's in your woods also. Yeah. So you should know what your, you know, ten dominant trees are, if they're good for deer or not, and if they're not for good for deer, why don't you kill them? Let that sunlight come in, stimulate the understory, allow more food to develop in the in your woods as well as the cover. So now... There's not a great disparity in forage value or cover value from your fields
0: to your woods.
3: At that point, all of a sudden, the whole game changes. Now, you're seeing differences in deer on your property that you couldn't imagine. When your woods start becoming just as valuable as your fields with regard to the food and the cover value.
2: That's awesome, and and and, we,
3: and, we, and and we still we still yet have not even uh, begin to discuss food plot uh, opportunities. You see what I'm saying? So now you're using yes, all of that as your base nutritional value, and you're just building on top of that. You know, that's just it's just icing on the cake with your food plot applications. Now you truly can start identifying when uh, the the annual needs are on your property with regard to low points in, in nutritional availability, and you can start filling uh, those spots with uh, w- with your food plots according to when they are that would determine what you need to plant. and And that's how you really raise the bar, not just by – Trying to plant food plots based on what somebody planted on TV, which is driven, as we all know, by sponsorships, not necessarily the need. And I'm not saying anything that's planted on TV is, is good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying, let's be honest. What's done on TV is based on sponsorships. And, and that's not all bad either. You know, we need sponsors to help get inf- information out, and there's many commercial sure. products that, that are very good, but just because somebody's using them on TV does not necessarily mean that you need them on your property. Think, think beyond that.
2: Now, if somebody else was, or, or I should say, if, if a person is looking to start from scratch another way, Is there a certain spot they should start, like maybe identifying cool season grasses and getting rid of those first? Or or what would you recommend for someone to just go out there now, uh, maybe say my property, for instance, I have uh, a a nice clover plot? If I wanted to turn that into um, some early successional plant community, would I let it go, manage the grasses first, identify the the 10 most prevalent types of plants there as well. Like, like where would you start or recommend somebody to start to turn that into that early succession?
3: Well, one, I would look at my property and kind of conduct an assessment of the uh deer habitat across my property. So, what is, how, how much what percentage of the property is in woods, what percentage of the property is in young regenerating stands, what percentage of the property is in shrub cover, you see how I'm going down, what percentage of the property is in early successional communities, what percentage of the property is in agriculture, what percentage of the property is in food plots, what percentage of the property is in wetlands, et cetera. And so I'm going to start right there, and then I'm going to consider how much Uh, forage value is in the woods how much is in the fields etc and and then I'm going to make a decision as to do I need as many as much percentage in woods as, as I have do I need as much shrub cover or old field or whatever as I have and and start from there so if I need more early successional communities it might be that you need to transform some woods into early successional communities and that's not that doesn't mean you need to clear cut because clear cut is a regeneration method when you clear cut a stand that means that you're going to uh, cut it to regenerate a new stand of trees and so you have a woody thicket there after you know a couple of years if you're clear-cutting hardwoods. Now, on pine sites, it's different. You clear-cut pines, you're gonna have an early successional community because, uh, you know, pines are not regenerating from sprouting back from the stumps and root systems like uh, most hardwoods do. And so you're talking about creating additional early successional communities in areas that once were woods, that, that's number one. Now, if I have existing early successional communities that I want to evaluate and maybe enhance At that point, you simply have to go out there and look at it and determine which plants are there and their value. And my first step is how much coverage of perennial cool season grasses do I have? And if you're in the mid-south northward, I guarantee you on 99% of the fields, it's going to be a lot. There's hardly a field out there that hasn't been planted to tall fescue, smooth brome, or... Orchard grass and Timothy from North Carolina to Tennessee to Arkansas and northward. I mean, those fields, if they're not cropped in some row crop, more than likely uh, they have a base of those grasses. And so at that point, I'm going to prepare that field for spraying. I'm going to let those grasses respond in, in late summer and through the fall. And then I'm going to spray them after a couple of frosts with an application of glyphosate at about two quarts per acre in the fall after a couple of frosts. And I say after a couple of frosts, and and that might be anywhere from, uh, you know, early October in New York, and it might be uh, early December, uh, even in South Tennessee or, or North Alabama, but After a couple of frosts, I'm going to spray those grasses because at that time, two things are happening. Number one, if there's any desirable warm-season forbs out there, they're going to be senescent or dead because it's frosted on them a couple of times. So I can use glyphosate, which is a broad-spectrum herbicide, and selectively kill my cool-season grass without impacting my warm-season forbs that, that might be occurring. But the other thing, and more importantly that's going on, is those cool season grasses are actively photosynthesizing at that time of year and they're sending carbohydrates into the root system in preparation for winter senescence. That's when you will get the best keel. If you wait and spray those grasses in spring, you can get a good brown out But within a couple of growing seasons, expect to see anywhere from 30 to 50 percent coverage of that grass back on the site because you did not get as good of a, 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 a root kill. Now, I'm not saying don't ever use spring applications. Just if you use spring applications, don't expect to get as good of a kill as if you use a fall application. So that's that's my if if you if you just do that and nothing else. I guarantee you will increase the forage value in your fields by at least 10 times, at least. Wow. Just with one one herbicide application by doing it correctly at the correct time to get rid of the cool season grasses. Because those cool season grasses displace warm season forbs that are going to be your highest quality nutritional plants.
2: The enemy. They are the enemy. Okay. Okay.
3: No that's now th- that's that, that's that's where the mowing thing comes in uh and I'll go ahead and get into this. I imagine uh there's a bunch of people listening that's wondering or might be arguing about some of this, and there's this old dogma out there that if you continually mow, then you continually produce fresh vegetation. you see what i'm saying yeah if you if you mow a field of grass. You set that grass back and then it grows back. And that young growing grass is more nutritious than that older grass. And that is a fact. That is true. There is no mistake in that. And overall, all plants reduce, all plants decline in nutritional quality as they get older because the cell walls get larger, the lignin content increases. The digestibility of the plant goes down, and the palatability of the plant goes down. However, here's an important distinction. If you have a ragweed plant, for example, growing, and it just sprouted up from seed, and it's about six inches tall, that's a very young plant. I mean you can take that in your fingers and mash it and it kind of goes to, to mush. I mean there's there's hardly any structural integrity there. It's it's very, very tender. And so the quality, the nutritional quality of that plant is exceptionally high at that time, right? Correct. If you have uh orchard grass or bluegrass and it's just germinated and it's growing and it's like three four inches tall, the same thing is going on. It is is very nutritious at that time. Uh, Whether an animal, it tastes as good or not is, is debatable, and that differs among which species you're talking about. But the forage quality at that time is very good. Now, let's go back to the ragweed plant. If the ragweed plant continues to grow through the spring and into the summer, and now all of a sudden it's late June, What's happening with deer in late June?
2: Well, they're, um, let's see here.
3: They they, they have fawns. They're growing. Yep. They're, They're needing cover. And antlers are growing, aren't they? Of course. All right. Now, how tall is that ragweed plant on many sites by, you know, let's just say late June? On many sites uh you're going to see ragweed plants that are anywhere from three to four feet tall. And on some sites, especially a little, little further down south where the growing season is longer, they might be five feet tall by that time of year. All right, so now that plant is relatively old compared to when it was three inches tall, right? True. And so overall, the lignin content and the cell walls in that plant are large. The stem might be... Uh, three-quarters of an inch in diameter. It, it, it's, it's almost woody. However, what about the leaves out on the ends of the stem? You see, as a ragweed plant and most of these forbs grow, new leaves are produced at the ends of the stems, correct? Yep, correct. Right. If, if, if the leaves at the ends of the stems are newly produced, and they were produced, let's say, you know, a week ago, how does that differ from the three-inch tall ragweed seedling?
2: It doesn't. It doesn't.
3: That's right. So how much young growth can a five-foot tall ragweed plant have on it versus a, a, a six-inch ragweed plant that you just mowed off? Wow. wow. Does, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. So, so the whole ragweed plant, does not rep- represent high-quality forage, but the leaves out on the ends of the stems are exceptionally high-quality, and if you collect all of those and weigh them, you have a much greater biomass than if you collected all of the plant material from a six-inch plant after you mowed it.
2: Right alone. the cover. Plus, if you
3: mowed it, you, to- you totally lost all of the cover. Right. You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So you can... This is one instance... You can have your cake and eat it, too. Now, the grass is different. How does the grass grow? It grows straight upwards, and what's on the top is not the youngest. And all the while, the, the cell walls are getting larger, the lignin is increasing, and the digestibility goes down. Oh, and by the way, deer don't like it anyway, and the plant doesn't provide cover. <laughs> So why in the world are people hung on wanting to mow fields for grass? It is the single, probably, the single worst practice that they could do to try and manage for deer forage and deer cover.
2: Boom. Wow. Does that make sense? Yes. I think a light bulb so, or so, two just went So off. Let,
3: let me let me say one additional thing. Now in in agriculture, you know we do we do all this plant sampling and we send all these plant samples into the lab for nutritional analysis. And and let's just pick soybeans. This is a good example. Uh, you might see where some soybeans they say you know produces ten thousand pounds per acre. Hmm, how did you come up with that? Well, put a fence around it. And once the beans reach maturity, you go in there, harvest the plant off at about, you know, one to three inches above ground. You know, you do this over, you know, a certain sized area that is, that is measured. You dry the plants and you weigh it. And so you come up with a biomass. However, is all of that plant deer food? No. No. Deer aren't eating those great big stems. I mean, not if there's anything at all to eat. They're eating what? They're eating the leaves off of the plants. And so if you just collect the leaves off of those plants, that biomass is not going to be 10,000 pounds per acre. Uh, most often it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of two to 5,000 pounds per acre, which is very good. And the quality of those leaves is, is most often excellent. But when you look at the diff, if you look at the quality of the whole plant, if you dried and ground up and submitted a whole plant, the quality is going to be relatively low because that big old stem was included in there. If you just send in the leaves of the soybean plant, your quality is your your biomass is going to be lower, but your quality is going to be much higher. That is what should be looked at because that is deer forage, and that's the same thing that should be done. When you are evaluating your old fields, don't clear whole plants and send that into the lab because your your forage value is going to be very low because you got all those big stems and old leaves and stuff in there that deer don't eat. Deer concentrate selectors, not browsers, and so they are concentrating their foraging on select plants and select plant parts, and they are eating the most. Tender, palatable, and nutrition nutritious portions of the plant that are available. So that is what should be sampled, both from a biomass point of view and from a nutritional point of view when you're evaluating your your old fields and, and what's being produced. So when when a uh, a forage agronomist tests forage value and quantity in a pasture, they're going to take whole plant samples. That are cut off at about an inch above ground, dry the material and send it to the lab. Now, if you do that with uh, a sample that was mowed just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the biomass is going to be a little lower, but the quality is going to be right much higher than if you did it on a plant sample that had not been mowed. So, some of the agricultural or agronomic practices with regard to evaluation and testing has biased our view of plant nutritional quality for deer. Plants should not be sampled in the same way for deer that they are sampled in a pasture. And so in a pasture, that's, you know, obviously... uh, very much dominated by grasses, and so they're trying to keep that either grazed or, or mowed down so they have relatively fresh growing grass, which is more nutritious and, and more palatable. And But that is not the same relationship with these forbs that deer are selecting.
2: Yeah, that's uh, a lot of eye-opening information there, Craig. I think... Uh the whole, the whole point about all your brows being from the ground up to four to five feet on every leaf versus just at the ground level, along with the cover that you have from a plant that tall, that's just a home run right there. I mean, it's just obvious to me. Um,
3: well, there, there's also uh, a, a similar situation with regard to planting native warm season grasses for deer cover.
2: Yeah, like switchgrass uh, and And right?
3: I, I have I have I have been in the middle of that for for twenty plus years, and and I have written many publications on how to establish and manage native grasses and and communities that are dominated by native grasses and uh, with and without forbs and adding forbs to the seed mixture, et cetera. But uh, I don't know, at least ten years ago, as we were doing all of these trials on uh actually 15 plus years ago as so we were doing all these trials on different mixtures of native grasses and different herbicides to use with establishment etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> uh you know I, I remember one day i thought you know what's wrong with broom sage and and we've got all this planted native grass and we've got broom sage coming up in here well, we didn't plant the broom sage well on uh, on on most sites our our broom sedge is anywhere from three to five feet tall. And, of course, broom sedge does respond to soil nutrition as as most other plants do. It's just that broom sedge can withstand uh, low soil uh, pH and low soil nutrient availability, but it definitely grows much better when uh, soil quality is greater. But the point is the broom sedge is remaining standing through the winter with no problem. Our big blue stem and Indian grass are falling flat on the ground. Switchgrass, according to what variety, will will remain standing through the winter, of course. But how much grass do we need? When I compare that to these communities that we're managing naturally from the seed bank, and we have many of these forbs, scattered brambles, and even scattered shrubs that are coming into these fields, I've got excellent cover through the winter with no more than oftentimes 20 percent or so of grass cover so i can have cover and my food too because the forbs that are out there during the summertime are an excellent uh forage for deer and many of them even produce rosettes through the wintertime that deer are eating on and so I began to look at that much differently with regard to the, quote, need of planting native grasses for enhanced cover for deer. Uh, in, in fact, I don't guess I've planted a seed of native grasses in 10-plus in, in years. Uh, there, there's simply no need to when you can manage huh. what's coming out of the ground naturally.
1: Uh, that's great information because uh, I'm, I'm actually – Getting ready to consider putting some switchgrass in, and uh, that, that definitely gives me something to think about there. Well, no, um, just just
3: think, just sorry, think about gonna... a field that is growing up naturally, and and how much cover there is out there in in summertime, and then going into wintertime, and and you know just evaluate it for yourself. You know, just eva- everybody should evaluate their sites independently and consider what they need for their property instead of just automatically doing something because someone else has done it.
1: That's
2: a great really point. The great bottom. point.
1: Yeah, we try to stress that to our listeners. It's all uh site specific and what what your goals are too, so we that that's a good point to reiterate. Well, I'm glad we covered all the uh important stuff now, Craig, but everybody is getting ready to play farmer. Especially up here in the north, we're getting our fields prepared for late May, uh, planting of like soybeans, corn. Let's dive into some warm season food plot strategies. I know you did an article for QDMA a few years back about mixing corn and soybeans in food plots. You want to talk about that a little bit or uh, if you're still recommending mixes like that or, or what kind of strategies are you using today for summer food plots?
3: Oh uh, no! If I remember correctly, uh, we did trials, and this was oh boy, like 2010, 11, maybe 12, somewhere in, in that neighborhood. Um, there were mixtures coming out where folks were combining corn and soybeans, and you know, of course, that's that's interesting. Uh, soybean leaves are, are great forage through the summertime, and then the grain from the corn can be an excellent source of energy in, in fall and winter, and then the beans, of course, produced on soybeans, uh, also a good source of energy through uh, fall and winter while they last, but we, we did, we, we planted a lot of this, and my question immediately was if I've got two acres to plant, should I plant a mixture of corn and beans, or should I plant one acre of corn and one acre of beans? And so that's what what the, that's the question that i had going going into that and so we did a lot of trials looking at a lot of different planting rates of beans and corn in the mixture you know where you combine the beans and corn and what we found was in no iteration did we get enough soybeans produced in a mixture to warrant planting a mixture versus planting In that example, an acre of beans and an acre of corn. So, I do not recommend mixing beans and corn. Uh, I recommend planting beans and corn separately. And according to (laughs) where you are and what the limitations are on your property, in most instances, I recommend planting beans over corn, meaning the acreage that you're going to plant, in most instances, I would recommend planting a higher a greater percentage of beans than corn. Uh, because of the forage value of the growing beans through the summer it is absolutely top shelf. Plus you get the added benefit of the beans standing in in fall and winter that are a tremendous source of of energy during that time and 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 deer love them. And so for that alone uh Hedge towards the soybeans and, and less corn. And once you get up on into the north, of course, that, that energy component is in the wintertime is very important. To be honest with you, down here, look, everything, so many wildlife species like to eat corn, deer included, and it's certainly an attraction. But biologically, there's nowhere down here that we need corn. In order for deer to survive the winter time, uh, if anybody right. can can give me example of of deer dying of winter starvation, uh, certainly south of of, of Ohio, uh, let, let me know. Um, it, the it, it, that by and large is, is not necessary. I mean, you could have something as as ridiculously simple as planting winter wheat and the energy available from winter wheat as a supplemental food source to what is occurring naturally is more than enough for deer to remain, uh, for deer to have enough energy to, to survive the winters. So now up north with persistent snows, uh, certainly you can have uh, deer offs where the snow is covering up naturally. Uh, available foods, and and then many of those situations, you might be able to help with regard to uh, winter survival. If there are some corn plots available, you know that that certainly is is plausible and and, and could be the case. But but down here, sure. not so much so. Uh, that's not to say nobody should ever plant corn. Um, corn is very attractive, and deer certainly can can gain some weight in in the winter time by. By eating corn, especially if there's not much else uh, available, but in terms of winter survival, no, it's just,
1: it's, it's not necessary. So what do you like for Tennessee or North Carolina or things like that for uh, places like that for the warm season food plus What would you recommend? Well, whether it's Tennessee,
3: North Carolina, or, or Michigan, uh, I, I simply do not think there's anything better than, than soybeans. That is, uh, okay. you, again, you get the added benefit of, of the beans hanging. Uh, of course, soybeans cannot withstand the grazing pressure that, that some other things have. But, you know, think about that. If you can't grow a plot of soybeans, why is that?
2: Right.
3: Look at the surrounding areas. How, how little food do you have in your woods and fields that would cause the deer to eat the soybeans as soon as they pop out of the ground and not enable them to, to grow. Now, if you've got, you know, a tenth acre food plot, well, you know, obviously you don't even need that many deer to uh, <laughs> to, to graze that down or you're, you're not going to get any real production out of it. But, uh, you know, think about food availability outside of your food plots when you're considering uh, the grazing uh persistence of or the ability of, of soybeans to withstand grazing um I, I really like iron clay cow peas or, or red ripper peas also that's an excellent forage, and they withstand grazing pressure better than soybeans but but still yet uh you know plots of an acre or even two acres can't withstand the grazing pressure of sixty deer per square mile when there's not much else to eat, and you know they get uh a whiff or a scent or a taste of uh the, the beans or, or peas and they and they flock to that food source. So you've got to consider all that. Um in and, and many areas uh I, I recommend uh American Joint Vetch ech and sometimes we will combine uh Alice clover, uh that's not a true clover, that's one word, A L Y C E, uh Alice Clover with the joint vetch, and and that's an excellent warm season food plot. Uh, in, in most cases, I'm looking at soybeans, some kind of cowpeas, or American joint batch. Those are my top three. Now, once you get up north, I'm also looking at alfalfa, red clover, ladino clover, and chicory. Although those are cool-season plants, they're producing a majority of their forage from May through July. So that's essentially a warm-season forage being delivered through a cool-season plant. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so uh if, if you've got excellent ladano, red clover, alfalfa, chicory growth, et, et cetera, um, <laughs> there, there, there may be no need whatsoever to try to plant soybeans. Or, right. or you might plant soybeans just to have the beans available into fall and winter as a fall-winter food source, but you're relying primarily on the forage of the cool-season plants to provide nutrition for, for deer growing, antler growth, etc. through summer. And again, I stress as a supplemental food source to what is occurring naturally. Again, don't rely. Come on, guys. Don't rely on food plots to try and feed your deer.
2: All right, Craig. I, I have uh, to that point exactly. I have a curveball for you. So say you're you're like me, and the back half of my property is pretty wet. I'm, I'm going to increase uh, the the young forest in the woods and early successional plant communities out along the food plots, or instead of the food plots, or with them. Um, I have some areas in my wet woods that I would like your advice on. Skunk cabbage is kind of taking over there. It's been logged, um, but the, the young growth is just not coming back as fast as I thought it should. Um, young
3: growth being young trees, correct?
2: Well, really anything. Um, there there are some, some cattails and things like that uh, a little bit, but come November in a recently logged woods, say three years ago, there's still not very much cover or browse. Uh yes, in, in the young tree or, or anything else. So what do you do in uh in a wetter woods where I want that savanna effect that you always talk about, but I'm battling wet feet, skunk cabbage, um etc. What comes to mind?
3: Um there? What comes to mind is this, and, and you're not necessarily going to like this, but okay. this, is, this is just the way it is. Uh, some acreage has extreme limitations. And when you're talking about wetlands, that's one of them. Okay. And so even legally, there are only certain things that can or should be done in, in wetland areas. And I, I, I strongly recommend against trying to manage for an early successional community in a wet area and not just in your wet woods, but let's say, for example, and th- this, this happens commonly, I mean commonly, uh, somebody takes a field out of production because they can get X amount of cost share through NRCS to turn it into grasses and forbs through some native grass for planting, right? Yep. Where are many of our most highly productive agricultural fields in bottomlands, right? Correct. Eco- ecologically speaking, those are not the most prevalent sites for early successional communities because historically, what kept those sites in an early successional condition? Most often fire. And fire ecologically is not predisposed on those sites. And so more often than not, you have wet conditions that that, uh, really limit you from using fire in those situations. And also in those situations is where you have many species of trees, uh, whether it be sycamore, green ash, uh, sweet gum if you're down south, lots of different uh, tree species on those moist bottomland sites that you literally are going to have to fight every year. And what I tell folks is, look, recognize a site for what it is. If you have a site that's wanting to be a bottomland hardwood forest, let it be a bottomland hardwood forest. Manage it as that. You can cut trees or kill trees occasionally to keep it in more of a a dense woody stem cover that would be of value to deer. You can kill some trees that are not not as valuable to deer and and promote those that are more valuable to deer, you know, for for mast production, for et cetera. There's various things that you can do in a bottomland uh, forested site for deer, but you're not necessarily going to get the same production as you would out of a uh, a more upland site that is better suited for an early successional community. Now, I don't know why you're not getting uh, X amount of woody stem growth on the site that you're referring to. And for skunk cabbage or some things, you still could go in there with the appropriate herbicide and do a little spot spraying. And I'm not talking about high-volume chemical spraying all over the place. I'm talking about very direct, low volume, spot spraying of an approved herbicide on that site. And if it's a a wetland area, you still could use glyphosate with an aquatic label, for example. Uh, and, And there's other herbicides, not just that, that could be used to spot spray some of those plants if they are kind of taking over and displacing the regeneration of the plants that you're uh, looking to have. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not, but yeah, on yeah. just about any any site, you're going to have some plants coming in that you'd rather not have, but you're sometimes going to have those sites where it's just dominated, and, and it's dominated to the point that that invasive species is preventing other species that are present. It's not that they're not present. They're there, but they're being out-competed by this uh, invasive species and they're not able to germinate and grow and so in those examples we have to get rid of those unwanted species to enable our wanted species to come out of the ground and respond
2: I love it I love it I think that's what I'm going to start with or at least trying to identify what's going on uh, more closely back there uh, I was but, just, the... just
3: keep in mind all sites are not applicable Okay. For all practices, yep. you, you you have to look at uh, limitations of sites, and it's not just wetland or upland. It might be, and it oftentimes is, whether you're on a north aspect or a south aspect, yep. whether you're on a ridge top or whether you're in in uh, you know a, a toe slope or, or in a bottom. You know, those are applicable for di- very different management practices. And, you know, if, for example, if I'm, if I'm on a property and there's topography, which, with, it's, it's always great when there's topography because then you have so many options and you can do so many things. I mean, it's like a canvas where uh, I, you know, you can just go in and implement all these. I'm not going to do the same thing on the north and east aspect as I'm going to do on the, uh, west and south aspect. There's very different things that I'm going to do, whether it's for deer or turkeys or something else, on different aspects, because I know how that will respond and how the deer and turkeys will respond to those different treatments. So just be aware that all sites are not applicable for all practices, and you have to recognize that.
2: I love it. I love it. And I think your comment about the north versus the south facing or or with that, whether it's high or low, um, I think... uh, it may have something to do with with some of the the south side of the property still having a higher canopy where they didn't log as much and and that south facing area not getting the sunlight it should which may be prohibiting some of that growth as well. Uh still trying to figure out why exactly but there's definitely a couple of good factors there that I should I should pay attention to. So, thanks for that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Craig, I want to be respectful of your time. We've had you on here for, for a while. I know you're you're a busy man. Um, is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap this up uh, for for round one? Love to have you on another time, too, so don't think you have to spill it all now.
3: Well, we, we've covered a, a fair amount of ground, and we weren't although we went on and on about some things we weren't <laughs> able to get into. To some detail, you know, you, you just can't cover all aspects of land management, right. you know, in an hour or two conversation. You you try to hit the high spots of some things that are important, and uh, I think we've done that and uh, certainly enjoyed talking to you and appreciate you giving me
2: a call. Oh, Craig, no, we, we more than appreciate it, and we more than covered uh – uh, a couple key points. I mean, I'm going to have to listen to this a couple more times just to make sure I grasp it all there. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, I want to tell everyone I, I picked up your book, Managing Early Successional Plant Communities for Wildlife in the Eastern U.S. Uh, it's a great book with lots of diagrams in it and, and good information, including some uh, some er- some herbicide uh, glossary and and just some good plant identification as well. If if people want to learn more about you and find you and the work you've done, um, where should we direct them?
3: Well, all of us here at the University of Tennessee have a web page, and uh, I, I certainly do. If The easiest way, to be honest, if somebody Googled my name and University of Tennessee, uh, my, my site will pop up. It, it's kind of long, you know, like, ag.tennessee.edu <laughs> slash FWF slash craig harper you know that's a little cumbersome but if you just google my name and university of tennessee uh that that will pop up the the book you mentioned it's uh it's kind of like a manual about a hundred pages long uh that's available on on that site for purchase and uh the, the new food plot book and the plant ID guide uh are about to come off I've just revised it, okay. and it's about to come off of the printer, uh, hopefully, in the next week. In, in fact, the the printer just emailed me today and asked me about the address to be shipping the books to, so uh, a, a link to be able to purchase the, the new revised food plot and early successional plants book uh, should be available on my webpage Uh, In in the next couple of weeks And there's also others such as The QDMA That has always uh, uh, Sold copies of those As well so there will be a number of outlets In which people can uh, Find those but of course On my webpage is is One
1: of them
2: Well we will be sure to share that link Where people can find those books as well And uh, you know I imagine You keep that webpage so long So there's not a bunch of podcast spammers trying
3: to find you right Uh, say that one
2: more time (laughs) no I'm just saying you probably keep your website so long so there's not a bunch of podcast spammers trying to find you and track you down right (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much again we really appreciate it and uh, we'll be in touch soon and can't wait to share the episode we'll let you know when we go live with it sounds good wow guys what an amazing episode I just want to thank Dr. Craig Harper one more time for coming on here. That was a super awesome episode, and I cannot wait to listen to it over and over again and put some of my property this year into some early successional plant community type habitat. So, Craig, thanks again, and uh, listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again. I want to uh, tell everybody to go on to our iTunes app and leave us a five-star review. If you do, and uh, leave your name and and a a paragraph or a text on what you like about the podcast, I'll be sure to find you and send you a free detail. I'm going to read off a review here from Big CC here in Michigan on April 27th. I found you guys a few months ago and have went back and listened to every podcast. I still consider myself very new to Habitat work, but I think you guys do a great job of asking the right questions so the information is meaningful to everyone. I appreciate you taking the time to put these all together and share the info that you do. Keep up the good work. Big CC, thank you so much for that nice review and the five-star rating. I'm going to find you and give you a free DPL, my friend. That was, uh, you know, that's the stuff that keeps us going, guys. We love that. We love the good feedback. We love learning. That's why we're doing this, you know. It is a little bit of work, but we have fun doing it, and uh, we're learning a ton along the way, I mean. Listen to that episode we just had. It's ridiculous how much information just came by us in about an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, More importantly, again, I want to thank the listeners. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Dip That Hydrographics, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, and Packer Max Cultipackers. Guys, please support our sponsors as they... Help support us and tell them the Habitat Podcast sent you and you'll probably get a discount depending on which product it is Um, and you'll definitely be dealing with some high quality products because it's the only thing we deal with here at the Habitat Podcast. Once again, if you do not know where to find us, you can find us at habitatpodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, the whole deal, guys. And we will be back again soon with another great episode. And like I said before, we are the podcast for becoming better habitat managers. The out there and enjoy your woods guys. Be safe.